Our scripture passage this morning is Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted by much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled by many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, well, good morning. It's good to be with you as uh, always on this uh, almost first day of spring. Uh, I've been preaching through Luke's gospel, as you heard read. Thank you, Lauren. Um, but before we take a look at this, this passage that we've already looked at a little bit, would you join me in prayer? Lord, as we sang earlier, uh, there is uh, nowhere else to go uh, but you. Uh, there's no one else who can do helpless sinners good. And so we come helpless we come anxious, uh, we come weak, and we ask that we would uh, hear and receive from you. Lord, I pray that I would uh, not stand in the way of uh, your word accomplishing its holy purpose. We thank you for that promise. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's maybe no better passage uh, that speaks to the fast pace, the busyness uh, of our time and place and culture, our city, uh, than this short story. The way that this has sometimes been understood and applied is that there are uh, some people, uh, some Christians wired like Martha, high-strung, busy, active, and there are others like Mary, uh, relaxed, uh, contemplative, though, though maybe a bit lazy. But the point here is not, uh, are you a Mary or a Martha? The point is not that there are two different personality types, nor is this meant to contrast two models of spirituality, active versus contemplative spirituality. The point is, we are all Martha, at least sometimes. I would venture to say that we all need to hear what Jesus says to Martha here. Martha, Martha, substitute your own name there. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. So, what is the one necessary thing? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. This section of Luke's gospel has a lot to say about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And here we see the posture of a disciple. Not two personality types, but two contrasting postures. The first, distracted, anxious, and troubled. The second, sitting at the Lord's feet. The two postures are the two headings of my outline, so let's look first at distracted, anxious, and troubled. First thing we need to understand, hospitality was a big deal in this culture. When I was in college, I went with a group to spend a few weeks in Morocco teaching English, 
And when our group of Americans were hosted in Moroccan homes for dinner, I remember these elaborate dinners being served with multiple courses. If you finished all your food from one course, then you were served another course, and so on and so on. It was amazing. And that is much closer to first century Jewish culture of hospitality than our own. Hosting Jesus and providing a meal would have included several courses and lasted most of the day into the evening. Martha is the one who's named as the host, verse 38, but her sister Mary, who seems to live there too, uh, would have been expected to help her. While uh, the honored guest, the rabbi, the teacher, Jesus, would have conversed and taught and told stories with the men. We don't know who else was there, probably Lazarus, their brother. Uh, Jesus had a very close relationship with all three siblings, uh, maybe others from their village or some of Jesus' disciples. But in this culture, the houses, the, the houses were divided into male space and female space. They were divided physically. The public room was where the men would meet, and the kitchen and other quarters not seen by outsiders belonged to the women. They were also divided socially. Male and female roles were strictly demarcated as well. Part of the problem, part of Martha's problem then, is not just the workload, that's part of it, but that her sister Mary was behaving as if she were a man. According to one scholar, this is Tom Wright, to settle in among the men was bordering on scandalous. But here she is, verse 39, sitting at the Lord's feet and listening to his teaching. Now, she wasn't literally sitting at his feet. That's an expression. We might say that she was sitting under his teaching. She was eating up what he was saying. She was engrossed in it. She was being a student, a disciple. But while she was doing that, verse 40, Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me, abandoned me, to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. She comes with the same root question that disciples do elsewhere when they're fearfully anxious. Lord, do you not care? Do you not care? And the implication is that if Jesus cares, he'll do X for us. In this case, that he'll tell Mary to help her. Well, Jesus' response shows how much he does care. He cares deeply for Martha and for what she's missing. Now notice Jesus doesn't respond, oh yeah, what was I thinking? A woman's place is in the kitchen. A woman's place, he seems to indicate, is at the Lord's feet, same as a man's. Jesus was radical in his treatment of women, in treating women as equal to men. I'm not talking about sameness, but equality and dignity, value, worth, as image bearers of God. Jesus frequently upends the cultural expectations of his time when it comes to women, spending much of his time being with and teaching women. In fact, no one in world history has done more to elevate the status and dignity of women than Jesus. To demonstrate this, there's, there's archaeological research that's been done in recent years. The thesis is that uh, 
as Christianity moved from the Middle East across Europe in the early Middle Ages, you can actually trace where Christianity uh, took root in certain parts of Europe based on the skeletal remains of women's bodies. Because prior to Christianity, the women's skeletal structures showed evidence of physical abuse. And after Christianity arrived, there are no indications of such abuse. This is why in, in some cultures still today that have not been influenced by Christianity, women are still treated as inferior. And I'm not saying that we've arrived or that the church has perfectly uh, applied uh, how Jesus treated women, but here certainly we see Jesus treat women with dignity, equal dignity. In his response to Martha, Jesus does not condemn her serving, but he also does not allow uh, Martha to condemn Mary for being with him. What Jesus gently and compassionately addresses with Martha is not her serving, that's not a problem, but her anxious and troubled heart. He says, Martha, Martha. And the repetition always shows deep emotion. Here the emotion is warmth, tenderness. Don't miss that Jesus deals gently with anxious people. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. How does he know that? Well, Martha's anxious heart is showing. By the fact that she's irritated, she's frustrated, not only at Mary, but at Jesus for not doing anything about Mary. But we can't look down on Martha here. She's the picture of a Christian, a true disciple, but one who is so focused on ministry, on serving, that she's allowed it to squeeze out the most important thing. When it says in verse 40, Martha was distracted with much ser serving, that verb, distracted, could be translated overburdened or pulled away. In her distracted, anxious, and troubled state, she's been pulled away from enjoying Jesus. So have we allowed the burdens of life, even serving, even ministry, to pull us away from enjoying Jesus? How often have we believed the lie that doing things for Jesus is more important than being with him. So this is a caution to all of us, and perhaps especially me, uh, and any who are serving in ministry. The temptation is to believe that our endeavors, achievements, accomplishments, activities, are more important than belonging to and being with Jesus. Now, modern American culture is one of, if not the hardest place in world history to learn to slow down and sit at Jesus' feet. When people ask us how we're doing, how many of us say, I'm good, busy. Some people may wear busyness as a, a sort of badge of honor as busyness is wrongly equated with importance in our culture. But others, we're just answering honestly out of despair, exhaustion. And you realize a few things about your own culture when you get to know people from other cultures. I was talking with a couple um, Albanian men at uh, the English conversation classes that we run at my church in Quincy um, about cultural differences. And they were describing that Americans 
uh, they come into the coffee shop alone. They want to get their coffee and get on their way as soon as possible. They don't want to stop to drink it. While Albanians believe, they're telling me, in sitting and sipping, enjoying their espresso. Okay, so what am I saying? Well, for me to stand up here and say, stop being so busy, misses the point. For some of you, the only way you could envision being less busy would be to quit your job, do less for the church, or give away one of your children. And to be clear, I'm not advising that, any of that. But I think we should all ask ourselves, why am I so busy? What's the underlying reason? And we should honestly consider, is my busyness coming from a need to prove myself? Or am, am I afraid of what I might have to face, what God might be saying to me, if I were to slow down? W.H. Auden began his famous uh, work, The Age of Anxiety, with this poem. Faces along the bar cling to their average day. The lights must never go out. The music must always play. Lest we should see where we are, lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night who have never been happy or good. Even when we're not busy like Martha, we're distracted. We're pulled away. How much do we constantly fill up what time we might have distracting ourselves with social media, TV, podcasts, whatever entertainment? The lights must never go out. Auden couldn't have envisioned the lights of cell phones. What would it look like to sit still and enjoy Jesus the way an Albanian enjoys their espresso? The good news is that Jesus calls busy, anxious, distracted, overburdened people to himself to find rest. He says, come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He is approachable, accessible, and delights in our finding rest in him. To steal a line from uh, Paul Miller, what Jesus is calling us to when he calls us to himself is not necessarily a less busy life, but a less busy heart. And that brings us to the second posture, sitting at the Lord's feet. While Martha was distracted, doing things for Jesus, Mary was just being with Jesus. Both are important, but their order, priority, are also important. Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. And there's a, a double meaning to the phrase, the good portion, as Martha was uh, busy preparing portions of food. But the good portion, the best portion, is to be with Jesus. This brings to mind some Old Testament poetry, Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
Through all the anxieties of life, he never changes. He's what we need, the most stable reality at the center of the universe. In Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Through all your anxiety, his love never ceases, never changes. Being with Jesus, enjoying Jesus, experiencing his love is Mary's portion. She's focused on the right thing at the right time. George Mueller once wrote, uh, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. Now, maybe that just sounds like a bunch of fluff, having your soul happy in the Lord. Except that George Mueller was not a fluffy guy. He's a guy who established orphanages in the city of Bristol in England, ended up establishing 117 schools, providing Christian education for more than 120,000 children during which uh, he served amongst the poorest of the poor and dealt with plenty of heartache in his life. How did he endure? Because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, applied to his own soul every morning through scripture and prayer, he had the strength, the resources to be happy whatever came. What we see in this short story is that a greater priority than doing things for Jesus is being with Jesus, sitting at his feet, enjoying him. The first and great, first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day. This is the one necessary thing, to enjoy the Lord himself by being with him. It echoes Psalm 27.4. David writes, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, that I may be with him all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, that I may enjoy him. This, the Westminster Catechism teaches us, is why we were created. This is question one. What is the chief end of our existence? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the two go hand in hand. That enjoyment must begin now. So if all this is true, if the Lord is the good portion, if there's nothing better than being with him, then how much of my time is spent sitting at his feet? And how much am I busying myself, distracting myself with other less important things? We may claim the Bible is God's word. We may tell others how transformative it's been in our lives, but do we actually spend any time in it personally, prayerfully? My discipleship group uses a, a devotional called Seeking God's Face. Uh, some of you probably know of it. I recommend it. Um, it kind of follows the church calendar, and each day there's a couple different Bible passages to read, usually a psalm and another. prompts you to go back and to meditate on the readings and to pray for certain things. To go through each day's readings and prayers slowly takes no more than 15 minutes. If I'm honest, I usually move through more quickly so that it takes about five minutes. And yet there's days that I tell myself I'm too busy. 
So that's one place where this, this story convicts me. And here's another uh, related. How much am I prioritizing loving my wife by making sure that she has enough time to sit and enjoy being with Jesus? If you're married, how much are you prioritizing and encouraging your spouse to sit at Jesus' feet? Why don't we make time? I think because much of the time, even most of the time, uh, we know that we're not going to have this awe-inspiring, otherworldly experience of God's presence, especially if you're only giving up a few minutes. To expect that every day is a false expectation. But what you find if you consistently spend time uh, being with Jesus, reading the Bible and praying, is that you will be like a tree planted by a stream of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaves do not wither. When the dry season comes in your life, whether that's disappointment or loss or uncertainty or heartache, you will have deep roots from which to draw water for refreshment. The word of God, the gospel planted within you to give you life, to keep you standing firm. That's the picture the Bible gives as to why to be consistent and disciplined in reading the Bible prayerfully. Tim Keller, in the the first chapter of his book on prayer, uh, in which he describes his own daily practices of of Bible reading and prayer, has an almost throwaway line where he says, uh, after about two years of sustaining these practices, I really began to have some breakthroughs. And that's always struck me, because if you're anything like me, If I don't feel an impact after two weeks, I'm tempted to give up on something. Now, it would go against the the theme of this sermon for me to give you something else to go and do. So to steal an image from Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, if someone from uh, the Arctic Circle wins a sunny vacation, he doesn't go to his hotel and step out on the balcony overlooking the beach and ask, how does this apply to my life? He just enjoys it. He just basks. Be with Jesus. Bask in his love. Consider and meditate and contemplate the beauty of Christ, his heart for you. Ortland writes in, in his book, Deeper, God made you so that he could love you. His embrace of you is the point of your life. I know you don't feel it. Even that is taken care of. He wants you to know a love that is yours, even when you feel undeserving or numb. The love of God is not something to see once and believe and then move beyond to other truths or strategies for growing in Christ. The love of God is what we feed on our whole lives long, wading ever more deeply into this endless ocean. And that feeding, that wading, is itself what fosters growth. We grow in Christ no further than we enjoy his embrace of us, his tender, mighty, irreversible embrace into his own divine heart. He made you so that he could love you. He redeemed you so that he could be with you. Jesus came and endured the suffering of the cross so that he could be with you and you with him. He endured the cross for the joy set before him. Hebrews 12. And what was the joy awaiting Jesus on the other side of the cross that he didn't already have? 
the joyful anticipation of being with his people, being with us, being profoundly united, one with us. The Lord is our portion. And Deuteronomy 32 says that the inverse is also true. The Lord's portion is his people. We are his glorious inheritance, Ephesians 1. We are his and he is ours forever. And that, verse 42, will never be taken away. For all eternity, we will progressively come to grips more and more each day with the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.7 We can't exhaust or fully comprehend the love of God that's demonstrated in the gospel. What you know of Jesus and his love is the tip of the iceberg. That's why Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 is for God's people to have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and to be filled with the fullness of God. Psychologists tell us that when you see something beautiful, the sunset, the mountains, the ocean, we're really fortunate to, to be able to see not from not too far away, all of those things. When you see something beautiful, it takes your mind several seconds of continually looking at it to be able to really take in the beauty so that it will have a positive, calming effect. While unfortunately, an unsettling or disturbing image will instantly lodge itself in your brain. For your own sake, for your own sanity and peace, Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, Psalm 27.4. He may be calling you to set some things down, to focus on him, to stop being pulled away, unbusy your heart, and see that he's the one necessary thing, the treasure worth giving up everything for. He is your portion. Let your heart be moved by the reality that you, that we are his portion, in spite of all our imperfections, he sees us as a husband sees his bride coming down the aisle, perfect, blameless, spotless, for he has made us clean. It's when we've been with him, enjoyed him, let him apply the gospel to our own hearts and been filled by him, that we are then equipped to do things for Jesus. As this pandemic uh, hopefully recedes more and more and things start to open back up, there's much that's unknown about how the world will be uh, forever different. But we know that we'll be engaging a hurting world. And you'll have an opportunity, a world of opportunity to love and serve and bring good news to people who've been struggling, who have perhaps lost loved ones, been isolated, who have questioned everything about their life and their core beliefs, you as a church will have many opportunities. But the only way to sustain doing things for Jesus is by being with Jesus, receiving the life, the rest that he offers. Pete Scazzaro says it like this, it's an illusion to imagine that we can lead people on a spiritual journey we have not taken ourselves. 
When we skim in our relationship with God, no program can substitute for the superficiality and self-will that will inevitably follow. Only if our inner life is strong, if we are receiving from the Spirit, from His Word, can we hope for the sustained effort that will love and serve and bless and reach others. And I'm preaching to myself here. When we know that He is ours and we are His, in spite of everything, that we are fully known and fully loved, that is a game changer. That is a life changer. We can work from a place of rest, not work to prove anything. We can live out of our gospel identity as accepted, beloved children, knowing that our worth does not come from our accomplishments, that we are loved not for what we do, but for who we are and for who he is. He's ours, and we're his, and nothing can take that away. Would you pray with me? Beautiful Savior, Lord of the nations, Son of God, Son of man, glory and honor, praise, adoration, now and forevermore be yours. You are worthy of everything that we can give you. Fill us now as we come to your table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.